What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Camarado, the host of the Golden Nuggets podcast. And I wanted to take a second before we get into the podcast today to talk about the mentorship that CJ and I just built for everybody. What we did was we saw a hole in the rehab community that we wanted to fill with education. And so we partnered with some of the best people that we know that are currently teaching other clinicians, and that's Dr. Mark Cardula and Dr. Jared Hall of Modern Pain Care. What we did was we built a mentorship that's going to focus on teaching the basics of exercise program building, management of the fitness forward patient, and developing skills that will not only apply to a patient who has difficulty standing from sitting, but also the one who just finished their total knee replacement, the recreational athlete, and even the one who's getting ready to return to competitive sport. I know personally that these things were not taught to me in PT school and aren't really taught in any other PT schools that I know. I know that CJ wasn't taught this stuff in PT school and Mark and Jared were also not taught this stuff in PT school. Now what I want you to do is I want you to head over to acrossthecontinuum.com or follow us on Instagram at acrossthecontinuum to sign up for more information because our first cohort is going to be underway very soon and we want you to be in it. Now on to the podcast. Hello, welcome to the Golden Nuggets podcast, episode 10. Very exciting. We're in, no, I screwed it up. It's episode 11. I, I just, no, we're, we're just going to keep rolling with it. I published episode 10 today already, and we're recording another podcast, episode 11, wow. which uh, I'm probably the most excited about this episode because we have my very good friend. Um, we are roommates from college and I uh, am happy to introduce that. Dr. Mike Mash of Barbell Rehab is here to chat with us about uh, the role of coaching in rehab and other things. So Mike, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on there, Dr. Joe. Um, love always, always love getting on podcasts like this so we can discuss uh, different types of how to implement fitness into the rehab profession. And but big picture, just super excited to be chatting with you. Yeah, and we can't forget we have the uh, incredibly beautiful Dr. CJ De Palma here, also joining us, my co-host. Uh, what's up, CJ? How you doing? Hello, hello. Hair's looking guys? great today. Sun's out, Thank guns you. out. Sun's out, guns out. It's right. It's Florida. It's nice. Going golfing soon. How's the so, lawn looking? It's good. I've got the seed down. Got the fertilizer down. I've got the strips. I put the tenacity. We're, go we're doing good. Hope I don't the, know so the sod is taking? Oh, yeah. The sod's taking pretty oh, good. perfect. Even after it got pulled up. So, but we got, we got the fixing the lines and we're good. So, we're not going to talk about our I mean, lawns. Right, we, we need to talk second. about lawns at, at least 40% of our conversations. Yep. We work together every day. <laughs> Um, so, so Mike, you have a very successful platform that you target specifically clinicians and fitness professionals who are looking to further improve their, um, integration of strength coaching, coaching in general and, uh, fitness into the rehab world. Um, so tell us a little bit, give us your elevator, elevator pitch, um, of what it is that, that your company does. Yeah, sweet. So again, um, I'm Dr. Michael Mash. I'm the owner and founder of Barbell Rehab. So really interesting story. I started this company about five years ago with the goal of basically thinking that every single person needed to use barbells to enhance their fitness. So we initially started 
with the goal of basically helping the barbell athlete themselves get back to their goals of training and lifting. But over the last two to three years, we've sort we've sort of shifted into the education, the continuing education space. So now primarily instead of working directly with the barbell athlete, we teach fitness and rehab professionals how to improve the management of this clientele instead. And it's been super rewarding uh, for me. We, we taught a one day live course all through uh, the end of 2019 into early 2020. Uh, I had the goal of doing 20 live events in 2020. Uh, but that got squashed come March when COVID-19 reared its ugly head. But that's okay. We pivoted to uh, online learning for fitness and rehab professionals, transitioned the one-day live course into a uh, self-paced uh, CEU-approved home study course. And now that uh, 2021 is rolled around, we're just starting up with live uh, events Again, and we have a two-day live event, the Barbell Rehab Method Certification, where we teach fitness and rehab professionals basically how to coach these big basic lifts, but more importantly, how, how do we uh, intelligently modify them for clients with pain? And I think it serves a pretty big gap here because as, as you guys know, uh, this stuff is not taught in PT school. At least it wasn't taught in my PT school. I don't want to uh, speak for every PT school. Which is my PT school as well. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> so I can guarantee that. What's that? It definitely wasn't taught in, uh, in mine. So. Yeah, they just sort of told us that you would, you would basically get your Therex in your clinicals, right? Um, and so, yeah, so my, my goal right now with this course, since we are targeting both fitness and rehab professionals, I want to teach fitness prep fitness professionals, a little bit how to modify these lifts for clients with aches and pains. And I also want to teach rehab professionals how to better manage these clients as well. So that's where we're at with that. Just taught the first one last weekend, super excited, super fun, and uh, heading out to Clearwater down your way, kind of, uh, this weekend. So. Where are you going? Are you going to CrossFit gym down there? Yeah, CrossFit Rebels right in Clearwater. Are they any good, CJ? Um, I mean, I know the gym because I've uh, hung out in Clearwater a few times. <laughs> so, are you yeah. fitter than the people at Clearwater? Say it. Say it right now in front of everybody. No, probably. Not. I, mean, I assume you are. Right. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. We put it out there in the universe. Um, cool, Mike. I I want to know. You talked a little bit about the hole that exists in uh, uh, the rehab world. What? what's the benefits of filling that hole and why do we need to be better strength coaches or coaches yeah. in general? Yeah. I think you hit a big, uh, a major point there with, e even though my company really niches down to teaching uh, these uh, rehab professionals, how to work with barbell athletes, the, the foundations of strength training and um, solid programming go much wider than just the fitness athlete or much wider than just the barbell athlete. Um, it's exercise prescriptions more than just three sets of 10, right? Not to knock on three tens, but this is stuff that just, we, we weren't taught in school. And we, I think as a profession, we are getting much, much better. We are getting much, much better. Do not uh, get me wrong here. We chronically underdose our, our clients and underdosing it can lead to a whole host of issues in, in the future. We want to make sure that we're progressively loading our clients in order to one, 
help them from the psychological standpoint, like, Hey, look, and this is something we, we hit in our courses. Hey, look, you're not as weak and fragile as you thought you were. You just comfortably picked up X amount of weight off the ground, right. Without having any kind of severe pain. So we, we hit it from the psychological benefit to loading. Plus also we, we know the potent physiological benefit reduction, re- risk reduction for sarcopenia, risk reduction for falls, um, and th- three sets of 10 of isolation work is just not going to, going to cut it. It's not that we need to get rid of that mentality. It's more or less, how do we make these, um, what am I trying to say here? How do we make these comprehensive programs that include the best of both worlds? I think, I think one of the biggest things that we see is, is a lot of clinicians come out of school and even, um, even clinicals and they're really comfortable, like you're you know, post-surgical or or like acute response, zero to six to eight weeks, you know, or zero to four weeks, something like that. And then, and then after that, right, because we have protocols that they follow and and it is the isolation stuff and it is very simple and you have, we have to move beyond that. Right. And, and I think, you know, we all started pretty much the same time and, and Mike, I mean, you had a very similar idea of the goal that we wanted to fill um, as far as like where we wanted our practice or our focus to go as far as our platforms and things like that. And, and it was like filling that gap, right. And that hole from basically like being in the isolation, the simple focus and progressing further and getting people back to sport and filling that, that gap from kind of like discharge to athletic trainer, if they're in the normal realm or like back to coach and, and sitting in there somewhere. And it's clear that a lot of coaches and, PTs and fitness professionals from the opposite side, the fitness professional doesn't quite understand that they're still in pain and they still need some help and what to do there. And then the rehab is professionals like, okay, they're getting to that performance aspect and how do I manage them there? And you're kind of like merging from both sides of the spectrum. I think that's really cool. Exactly. Um, yeah. that, that a lot of people really struggle with that. A lot of coaches and PTs are um, uh, ignorant, you know, to that mm-hmm. range of training. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point there, uh, CJ, of whose role is it in this in-between phase? Because if if we're treating within the traditional insurance-based model, many times, especially for post-surgical cases, you're not going to see people with ACL repairs in the clinic for 8 to 12 months, right, if you're within an insurance-based model. So quite often, and this is no fault of the PT or the PTA whatsoever, we do the best we can within that framework we control the pain, we control the inflammation, we get them moving, we restore range of motion, we, we start strength training, but then the, the client might say, hey, I can't afford my copay, or um, this is obviously outside the scope of like a cash-based, uh, cash-based realm, but hey, I can't afford my copay or my, my visits are out, what do I do now? And I think that that gap right there can be, uh, people from across the disciplines can, can help these folks because we have a lot of fitness forward uh, physical therapists now, whether, whether you're just a strength coach, whether you were a strength coach before you were a PT, whether you have your CSCS, whether you're a certified personal trainer, or whether you have neither and you just want to continue to help these folks, right? Um, a lot of people are transitioning from uh, working with them in the clinic to doing some sort of online coaching, some sort of wellness so I, I think there's this gap here and, and I want to help educate across disciplines. What do you do? What do you do? How do you strength train with somebody that's four months out of a knee replacement, four months out of an ACL repair, three months out of a hip replacement? You know, there's this gap here that 
because what's the alternative? If, if we don't empower and educate these fitness and rehab professionals, how to work with these folks, what's the alternative? They, they either go home and don't do anything or they go home and wing it. And a lot of times it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. We would hate for people to try and wing it. And, you know, I, I don't want to say screw something up, but if they are post-surgical, then yeah, um, it might be something outside of the realm of what they were supposed to be doing on the protocol. Although if yeah. they're discharged from physical therapy, they're probably outside of the protocol. But um, like one thing that I think is uh, an important uh, question to ask is, do you feel that people need or, or rehab professionals need something like an SCS, like a sports uh, certified specialist to work with, quote unquote athletes, um, or a CSCS to step into that field? Uh, as far as a requirement, no, I, I don't think you need either of those as a requirement to work with clients, uh, in, in a strength-based sense. Um, I will, I will say I, I do have some bias, uh, for the CSCS. I do think out of all of the options we have, you will get a good foundation of strength training principles with the CSCS. Um, and I still, I still recommend that for folks, but big picture, you don't need quote unquote need either in order to effectively manage this. What you really need is you need to learn about sound programming principles. And there are other routes out there where you can, you can either self-learn, you can uh, work with people that are specifically teaching other clinicians how to do that. Um, so yeah, I don't think they're necessary, but I, I do still in, like the CSCS. Yeah. I think the CSCS introduces exercise, like just the pure basics of like movement, cueing and correcting mm -hmm. better than most things. Um, the book, the essentials is super dry, but it is, it is very <laughs> informative. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think, OCS and, and SCS create a very high level of problem solving um, and ability to just like maybe assess situations a little bit, a little bit more broadly. Um, but I definitely don't think that they're necessary. A lot of people really focus a lot of time and effort and on those things. And, and, you know, I think plenty of people that aren't OCS or SCS certified are very capable of managing athletes at the highest level. Sure. Yep. For sure. Um, CJ, as one of the fittest people on the planet, what do you think your fitness background before going into PT school, um, what sort of leg up did that give you coming out of PT school? Um, I mean, I think it gave like, every, like 100% of the options and opportunities I've had are because of the strength and conditioning background I had prior to PT school. And then the CrossFit coaching background that I maintained during PT school for sure like without question you know if anyone has ever followed my social media channels and and, and movement doctor and, and things like that they they know that like I'm very pro I could think school taught me a lot of things it taught me how to learn and how to gather knowledge effectively but it didn't teach me how to treat patients very well and my at all and <laughs> so uh but my background in like the what it taught me about gathering knowledge effectively was what I've learned out of school and post-school and my knowledge of fitness and those kind of things is what has helped me maybe just be confident in what I'm doing, right. Whether it's the most effective way or not, you know, I was very confident working with people without a mentor directly over me, like the second I came out of school and, but I was with the fitness athlete. So I, 
you know, we found our niche and that's where we went. So I think that, you know, I, I kind of like served it up on a golden platter, right. You know, it was like a softball pitch for me waiting to happen because of the background and things, but I think fitness has been a lot of it progressing and understanding programming principles prior to PT school. I mean, beyond helpful. Yeah. And I mean, I'll toot your horn for you. You do some of the programming for some of the fittest people, literally some of the fittest people on the planet, which is amazing. If I, you know, if I say so myself, um, I think it's, it's such a weird dichotomy, not a dichotomy, but a line that, that seems to be towed in like the DVT student groups or the online fitness and rehab community is like, do PTs and do rehab professionals need to do the things that they prescribe to their patients, or do they need to exercise to understand what it is that they're trying to prescribe? And there's a lot of pushback when people say that you have to practice what you preach, but I don't think that it should receive that pushback because there's a certain ability to communicate moving through space and um, subjective intensity and, um, you know, how to experience a program over four weeks that I think is lost if you are not part of that uh, participant or you don't have that participation. I can speak on this. I, I agree with you. Um, I think, I think when we come to that topic, there's obviously two polarized views here. One, one side will say, no, you don't need any experience whatsoever. Uh, an effective coach, as long as you're an effective coach, you don't need to have that experience under the bar. And then the other side will say, well, some of the best coaches are the ones out there setting records on the powerlifting platform or on the Olymp in the Olympic weightlifting or CrossFit realms. And I, I think when we have polarized views, the, the answers, and I think you alluded to this, is always somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, you, you don't need to have a 600 pound plus squat to effectively coach the squat, right? But I'd like to, I'd like to at least be able to go through the movement myself, right? So I, I wouldn't prescribe a movement that I haven't at least tried. So I think there is some merit to at least practicing what you preach to a degree, right? But not necessarily need, needing to be at the high end levels of performance in that sport. Yeah, I agree. I definitely think that. I think you're right. I think you're right on it. I really don't know what's to add. I don't know. I was trying, trying to be trying to be helpful to it. it. It's somewhere in the middle for sure. I there's your your spectrums where people are successful in both realms. Like there's plenty of very high weightlifting coaches that were never that never really did it right. And it's football. I, I traditional sports probably aren't the best example because those are really you know diamonds in the rough of like the coaches who coach that never played. And those are just like sons or, or daughters that like grew up in, in the family, they've been around it, you know, and, and I think having experience within it is very important. If someone has never snatched and they're trying to treat someone whose main issues come somewhere within the movement of a snatch, I think there's a problem there. I think there's a big problem there. Um, you know, does that person need to be, you know, a world record holder? No, absolutely not. So I, I, but I think there has to be some familiarity with the situation at hand for you to be effective. You know, if you want to treat baseball players, you need to understand the sport. You need to understand arm slots and throwing and mechanics. Like those things are important. It's hard to treat when you don't understand the sport 
or this, their, their activity at all. Rock climbing, right? I'm not saying you have to be a rock climber. You need to understand the, the aspects and the requirements of the sport. And I think that's really important. That's where it comes down to. To, to some people, that may be a hot take that you need to participate in the sport that you're trying to treat people in because the way that we go through school is to become generalists and to treat the symptoms uh, of the patient that are in front of you. And so somebody who's listening to this, who doesn't agree that they need to play baseball to, or have thrown something in the past to treat uh, an overhead athlete or an athlete who participates in overhead sport, um, they might say, well, I can, evaluate the person. I can see what it is that they're having difficulty with. And then I can intervene on that. Yes. Um, and I think that's, that's totally accurate, but again, it kind of leaves that, that thing that we were talking about earlier, where you have this rehab person who can do like 75% of what the, the person needs to be done. But then there's that 25% or that, that 30% that is the leg that's going to take them back to that value, um, driven, uh, activity or goal or thing that they are in rehab for. Uh, and I, I don't know how that gap would be closed if that rehab professional wasn't a part of that community. Yeah. That, you bring up a, you bring up an interesting point there. And I think as, as, as generalist PTs, if that's the, if that's the terminology we want to go with, with coming out of PT school, we, we can help anybody when it comes to symptom resolution, activity modification, right? Or symptom reduction, I should, I should say symptom reduction and activity modification. We, we can help really anybody I could help. So I don't know a thing about golf. I, if, if, we're going to teach you, Mike, I can barely, I can barely hit it straight with a putter. I think the last time I golfed was when I was like, Oh gosh, 16. And I did a par three and I was so embarrassed that I had to use a putter like to hit, to like drive because that's the only way I could hit it straight. So that's impressive. That is impressive. I'm not even mad about that. I'm, I'm impressed. I just, it just, I don't have that motor pattern. I don't understand it. So where I'm getting at is if a, if a professional golfer came to me and asked me to, um, to help like, he's having pain with the golf, the golf swing. And once my assistance, I would not feel comfortable working with that person. I just really wouldn't because I, I can say, okay, how are you? I wouldn't know how to optimize a swing. Well, now we're getting into the whole like performance and form aspect of it. I wouldn't know how to optimize the swing. I would know how to modify his daily activities. Like if he's having uh, provocative, if he's doing things that are uh, pain provocating throughout the day outside of golf, I'd be able to uh, provide uh, recommendations for, Hey, uh, if it's hurting, you do something like do it this way instead. And I would be able to program a sound strength and conditioning program. But as far as optimizing golf form, like swing, I would be clueless. Sure. And I think, I think that's where, where potentially the, the shifts or this like deviation lies of like, it, that's not really our place. It can be, if you are a PT that understands that that's great, right? TPI or whatever with its flaws, but you, that's nice to have, right. You know, and it's, it's good to be able to do that, but I don't think, you know, you've treated athletes enough and you understand that there's rotation in it. You know, it hurts when he backswings or he has golfers level and it's, it hurts when he grips. Right. And so, but you understand the general mechanics of like gripping something and rotating with it and having pain there. So I don't think you really need to know the ins and outs, you know, like if someone snatches poorly, 
I don't think you really need to look at changing their snatch because that might not be in the realm of most PPTs and that's totally okay. But you have to understand what the snatch looks like, like just the general gist of it. It's like when someone says, Hey, this is what I do. And it's like, okay, I know, I know what that looks like. I can yep. envision that, you yeah. know, it says I snatch and the PT is like, I have no idea what that is. I feel like there's like a problem there, there, right. Sure. You know, there's zero knowledge of it. I don't think we need to have the expert knowledge necessary. Um, so that kind of rolls into my, sorry, Joe, I'm taking over. This. No, go for it. Uh, goes into my, my next kind of uh, question I have for Mike. And so you, your, your focus of the business is fitness professionals through rehab professionals learning the barbell, correct? That's like the main. The, yes. The yes. So we teach, we teach the main lifts and with the two day, the one day course was just the barbell lifts, squat bench, dead overhead press with the two day course. We've kind of expanded into more dumbbell work, shoulder, uh, like, not, I wouldn't say isolation work, but really teasing things out to build full programs because not everybody needs to train with a barbell. And I used to, it's my preference. It's my bias, right? Um, they're, they're great. It's our preference but, too. Yeah. But if somebody wants to dumbbell bench press for the rest of their life and has no goal of really getting back to a barbell bench press and they're not competing, who am I to force the barbell down their throat? But um, yeah, so we've, we've kind of expanded outside of that, but the bread and butter is still the barbell lifts. Sure. So my question, my question to you on that is when is it okay for the fitness professional to uh, intervene on a painful athlete? And when is it appropriate for them to shift? How are you teaching that? Gotcha. I, mean, I, will... I, I don't think we chat. We definitely didn't chat about this before. I didn't mean to drop a bomb. This is like, I'm, I assume we probably have a very similar viewpoint on it, but I just want to hear you kind of talk that out. And I assume you re referenced that in the course at some point. Yeah. Um, so my, I'm very interested to know what your thoughts are on that. Gotcha. Yeah. You, we, we talk about that in the first module, like what is the role of the fitness professional with a painful athlete? And I've gotten slack for this. I mean, I've had people comment on posts and criticize me. How dare you teach fitness professionals how to work with somebody that has pain, right? That's, that's not within their scope. But if we zone out and realize that we're, we're seeing a shift in the whole idea of what pain is and living a pain-free life is not really the goal. Pain is such a normal human experience that these people, these clients that fitness professionals are going to work with, the odds that all of them are going to be pain-free and have full mobility at every single joint are, are very, very low. So here's, here's where I draw the line. I'll boil it down. Um, if somebody is in your gym and you're a fitness professional, personal trainer or strength coach, and they complain of pain during a lift, let's just use hip pain with squats as an example. If that pain can be modulated or decreased with a simple change or modification in form or programming, that's 100% within the scope of the fitness professional. If you can change the form or you can change the programming and it changes the pain or we, I don't like the word eradicate, but if it changes it and reduces it enough that the client is happy and the client and it reaches the client's goals, then that's within the scope of the fitness professional. If after a form or a programming adjustment, the client is still complaining of pain or an inability to reach goals, then I would refer out to a rehab professional. Yeah. It's, it's certainly an odd relationship that people get so frustrated with fitness professionals wanting to intervene on pain. But I think that comes from the 
possible. I, I mean, I haven't talked to any of them, but I would assume that that would come from an understanding that pain is, you know, equal to some sort of structural abnormality or deviation that needs to be handed off to, um, a, a medical professional, um, because it's outside of the realm. But if we think about like what makes a good coach, right. Um, and I'm, I'm going to use coach here as either a fitness professional or a rehab professional, what makes a good coach is the ability to take the goal of the lifter, take the current level of the lifter, and again, create a program that is going to, um, reach that goal. And so it's, it's not like, if there's a personal trainer or a strength coach who doesn't have a medical background is presented with somebody with hip pain while squatting, well, why would they need to refer out if they can just then say, Hey, let's take 50 pounds off the bar. And that helps with what's going on. I don't know why there's so much, why people get their panties in so much of a twist because of that. I think it comes down to just a lack of an abundance mindset. Right. And this, and what, what we really, the, the big villain that we're chasing here is the over medicalization and unnecessary surgeries. If we can really, if we can get fitness and rehab professionals to work together and realize that, Hey, this, this form or programming modification isn't helping. I want to send them off to this local rehab professional that, I, I know is skilled in working with these clients, but also knowing that once their goals have been achieved in a rehab sense, that they're also going to come back to the gym after. And I think that's what it really comes down to. There's this fear on both ends, right? The fitness professional may be afraid to refer out because, oh my gosh, I don't want to send them to a PT that says lifting is bad or have them do breathe into a balloon or something. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Or on the flip side of things, I don't <laughs> shots fired. Anyways, yeah, on the, on the flip side of things, rehab professionals are very hesitant. Okay. So they, the client finished the plan of care. They, their, their pain is under control, but they still want to keep working out. Rehab professionals are a little hesitant to send them out to a fitness professional for the same reason. Is this fitness professional going to do some BS you know what I mean? So there, there's this network of fitness professionals and rehab professionals being on the same page, knowing when to refer out and knowing how to say, Hey, look, this is just an issue that it just be that way. Right? Like this, it's, you, this isn't an issue that needs surgery. So yeah, science. it's science. It's I think, that's how it be. Yeah. That's how it be. So I think, I think you hit on a point. I think we're all, you know, we all, you know, fluff each other's echo chambers in this, in this chat right here. But, but I think it really falls down to this no man's land, this niche that you're, you you came out of school wanting to fit in and work with that athlete. And you wanted to be both, right. You wanted to be able to be the coach. You wanted to be able to, to, to solve the problem from both ends. Right. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And I know that's what Joe wanted to do. Joe didn't know what he wanted to do when he got out of school. That's what he wants to do now. And, <laughs> and so and, and he, he laughs or he smiles, but he knows it's true. And so we've done that. That's where we lie, right? That's where you, from an educational standpoint, lie. That's where me and Joe lie from a treatment standpoint. And we're able to solve this on, on both ends of the spectrum. And that's, I think that's where the field, especially with insurance and all these issues and limitations that are being, you know, and, and, and uh, CSM just like 
plummeting reimbursement rates. Like you have to be like any PTs listening to this, you have to continue to like make yourself more valuable than just sitting in a clinic all day. And, and, you know, and I don't want to uh, bulldoze this, this uh, podcast into a different direction, but it's really important, right. To, to fit and fill this narrative that we're talking about. And, and Mike's doing a great job of it and teaching both sides of the spectrum or to, to teaching both, both uh, professionals on the side of the spectrum to come to one common goal of, you know, finding this middle ground. And it's really, really important because the field is going that way. Insurance might not do its job for PTs as a profession much longer, you know, five, 10 years. It could be, I mean, you know, especially if there's like a universal healthcare kind of stuff like this, this is really, really important stuff to live in, in this realm right here. Cause we're solving a lot of problems and working with professionals, teaching them, uh, the fitness professional or working with athletes from a rehab standpoint and then maintaining them through a performance standpoint and kind of everything yeah. in between. Uh, and it seems like you've really done a good job of fitting in that niche. And, you know, I, I really hope you continue to grow and, and just like blast the masses with this, this realm that we're, we know to be super important, you, you know, that uh, yep. for the mass, like the abundance of fitness people out there that, go in and out of pain on a regular basis. Yeah. Mike, if I could cut you off real quick, I, I also want to make, and Joe, it's fine. Yeah. Um, I also want to make the point that it's a super important realm to be in because of two things that are, I'm just going to start opening the floodgates of my own brain here, but the, we talked about the shift in our understanding of pain, Right. And that it hurt doesn't always equal harm. And it very rarely does, right? There is almost never an excuse for somebody to not exercise or to stop exercising. And if we take a look at, again, I always hit on the activity guidelines for all Americans, but if we look at the physical activity guidelines, there's very few and far between reasons that we should not be pushing for people to do more exercise. So we have very few people that are exercising. We have very few reasons to not or stop exercising. And we have a lot of fitness or um, uh, medical professionals who should be understanding that those two things should coincide with one another. And so I don't see a good reason to, if you get a patient who comes in, who isn't exercising to start pushing exercise onto them, who isn't modifying their exercise right to try to improve their exercise modification or who doesn't understand how their pain or symptoms does or does not relate to their ability to move through space. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I, you, you actually piggybacked right on what I was going to talk about. And so, yeah, so that's, this is a nice segue because here I, I worked in the clinic, I worked in a clinic full-time for three years when I came right out of school uh, at a hospital based hospital-based outpatient clinic where I saw a ton of people that had no prior history of exercising. They came in with some sort of pain and I was able to show them how beneficial that exercise can be. So they come in, we, they're like, Hey, this is actually kind of fun. I, I'm enjoying this. I'm starting to feel better. So then what do we do? We, we discharge them. And then where do they go? They, they come from this history of no exercise background. They were, they were introduced to sort of a, a modified level of exercise. It, it helped them. It helped them with their pain, whether it was truly the exercise, the increase in self-efficacy, whatever was the causative factor, regardless, we got them moving. And now where do they go? 
how do we, how do we continue their programming? And a lot of us physical therapists want to continue working with them under a wellness, uh, like a wellness, uh, what am I trying to say? Under plan wellness plan. Yeah. Under a wellness plan. Yeah. I'm just missed the word plan under a wellness plan. And a lot of fitness professionals also want to target this clientele too. So that's, that's a huge thing. If we just even step out of the fitness athlete, out of the barbell athlete, there's a bigger problem here. And that bigger problem is like you said, inactivity. And how can we keep these people exercising after a four week, four to six week plan of care? Yes, Mike. (laughs) Uh, So I I have another question. Uh, So when, you know, asking you kind of like that first, that first module that you go through, right? Like when, she said the two things that you focus on are basically if it can be it can be addressed with simple modification, it's within the fitness uh, professionals realm, right? Yeah. Okay. So you said form and programming. I would love for you to kind of without sharing your whole course, if you're cool with it, break down what you mean by form and like like how, like what like an example and then what you mean by programming from the fitness professional. Like what are you teaching them? as like what those terms mean and how you, how you're modifying those, like what's within that realm of those specifics. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. We have free articles on this stuff, so I'm no, no problem talking about it. Um, right. What's that? No proprietary information. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no proprietary information that I'm, I'm hiding. And uh, yeah, so it really comes down to now, now we're talking two polarized views right now in the industry on form. Like one, one side of the story will say, Hey, form doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. Your body can adapt to anything. And the other side will say, we're not going to load anything until it looks perfect. Right. And so when we hear these two polarized views, the, the answer is somewhere often in the middle. So when we teach form for the barbell lifts, there is a general way in which I'd like to the lift to look like you wouldn't do like you wouldn't do a bench press to your forehead. That's a different exercise. You wouldn't bring the bar to your forehead. That's a, that's a different exercise. And there it's like are guillotine press. Yeah. So yeah. So guillotine press to the neck, JM press to the forehead, whatever you want to ah, call it. Right. Um, so <laughs> there's, that's something that I would want to jump in and optimize. So I'm a big fan of correcting large, um, deviations from what we would consider normal. And I know what is normal, right? But I'm not going to get in and blame somebody's back pain solely on a little bit of butt wink at the bottom, or I'm not going to blame somebody's knee pain because we're letting the knees go forward in the squat. So I, the way I teach it is, Hey, this is the way we teach the lifts for performance. And we teach them this way because it maximizes moment arm and maximizes mechanical leverage. And if we're not doing it that way, we can be putting excessive, not even excessive, extra stresses on the tissue that may not need to be put there if we optimized it this way. Um, So teaching people about this, teaching people that, hey, there is a general way we like these things to look. um, And if even with and now we can talk into the modifications, even if the form looks decent, I like the word decent. I don't know. I'm biased towards that. If it looks decent and somebody has pains, there's ways that we can further modify it to offload sensitized structures, shift the load to a different structure, or even from a giant psychological standpoint, make the lift a little bit different so that the body no longer perceives it as a noxious 
stimulus. So that's where I really come in with form. I'm not going to promote deadlifting at end range lumbar flexion because to my knowledge, the current evidence doesn't suggest that there's any kind of performance benefit training at exact like an end range, but I'm also not going to jump in and correct if I see somebody has a little bit of lumbar visible lumbar flexion during the deadlift. Right. So, uh, I think that answers, that's a long winded answer to your form question. Um, so regarding programming that really comes down to, are we, and I, I see this a lot. People are having trouble tolerating. I'm going to use the word bolus large a large bolus of exercise because the, the example I use is let's say somebody has shoulder pain with a bench press and their, their pressing routine is five sets of 10 of bench press on Mondays only international chest day taken each set to failure. So, and if you have pain, this could be something that we can adjust with the programming, right? It, this, this may not have anything to do with form. We're just providing the dosage in a suboptimal manner. So instead of doing five sets of 10 of the bench press on one day a week to failure, maybe we spread that volume over the week. Maybe we have the client do some sort of horizontal pressing twice a week. And instead of taking the sets to failure, maybe we back the RPE down to RPE eight instead. And this uh, crushing this myth that you need to take all of your compound uh, lifts to failure in order to see progress. So I think a lot of pain is blamed on form when it really just comes down to, okay, maybe the client isn't tolerating the dosage we gave them. If, if you went to the doctor and you had side effects from a medication, more often than not, uh, well, I'm not a physician that prescribes medication, but more often than not, rather than and like immediately scrapping the medication, they're going to adjust the dosage first. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And then, and then we're kind of presented with the problem of the rehab professional who hears that I'm having pain with bench press at five sets of 10, or I'm here, I'm having pain with bench press. And instead of being like, let's take a look at your program being like, Oh, well, let's see what your subscapularis is doing Yeah, and <laughs> doing some sort of internal rotation per instead of being like, Oh, when does it hurt? It, you know, at what rep in a set, at what set in your, you know, session, um, at what range of motion, if not at a specific. And so like there, there's this problem where yes, people can recognize that I'm having pain with bench press, but there's almost this like leap into left field where, um, they try to be very nonspecific, um, when specificity is very much so needed. Yeah. Or just immediately taking the person out of the pattern. Like, okay, it hurts to bench, stop benching and let's do, I don't know, insert rehab exercise instead. And it, there's nothing wrong with that insert rehab exercise instead, but we want to keep people in the pattern, right? If, if it just takes, if all it takes is a dosage adjustment, then we can keep somebody entirely in the full range of motion bench press. And maybe it was just a dosage issue and maybe they're having pain at a certain intensity and, maybe pain is onset intolerable pain is onset at 225, but 195 feels decent. So instead of telling them stop benching, we just say, Hey, let's get some volume in at 195. It may only be two to three out of 10 pain, but this is something you can now adapt to. So yeah, uh, we could get in our own echo chamber and talk about this stuff for hours, but That's I, what we're I know for, we man. see eye to eye on this, <laughs> but one of the big things I push with my courses Look at the programming before you add foam rolling, before you add mobility work, before you just start throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks, how, how is the dosage being applied? I think the best question is like, when do your symptoms arise? Right. And it's like during this, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, great history. 
which is, and I, again, more echo chamber, right? History and subjective is the most important thing when you're working with a patient or an athlete. It's like, what have you been doing? When does it hurt? What's yeah. causing the problems? You know, what do you, what, what, what has the last like five weeks looked like leading up to this point? If you're not asking those questions, if you're just, okay, you have this, maybe a little bit of history, and then you go right into, oh, we found this anomaly, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's terrible. And it's one of, runners are a great example of, of people who who've don't understand dosage issues when it comes to pain because they're just like, I can't run. I'm like, okay, well, what'd you do this week? Like, well, I ran 38 miles. And it's like, okay, so when did it start hurting? You're like, day four, mile seven. So up to this point, you would run 15 to 20 miles pain-free. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, you can run right? You certainly run. Maybe you just can't run at that dosage or can't squat. Okay. Can you do an air squat? Bam. Nothing. All right. Well, we can squat. We have a starting point. Right. And I think finding that win quickly is really important to like setting the tone of, of maybe what's to come. But yeah, I, I agree with you a hundred percent, you know, for looking at pro that's before I even knew how to integrate programming and rehab and stuff. That was all. I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Okay. I did snatches, muscle ups and handstand pushups yesterday. My shoulder hurts. Oh, okay. My shoulder hurts when I do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. How about that? Right. So yeah. definitely I agree hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think, and like some of the factors are, is the pain driven by, is it range of motion specific? Is it, is it only creeping at higher intensities or is it only creeping at higher volumes? Because each, each one of those factors is going to be the modifications are going to be a little bit different. And I I've gotten accused. So I've gotten accused of palling strength on top of dysfunction, right? Which is no longer a thing in my opinion. But if we go back to the example of somebody with hip pain during squats, many times the pain is only in the hole. That's it. And if you just have them squat to a box that is slightly above where the pain is, you can still squat really heavy without any issues because the only sensitized part is the bottom of the range of motion. But I've had people say, well, how are you going to have them squat heavy just through that partial range? And what the, what they don't understand is if it is, if you can keep finding the entry point, if you can keep that person in is as similar possible exercise with just a small change that in it of itself might help help desensitize that painful range of motion just by bombarding the brain with a healthy stimulus. Hey, look, I can still squat 315. It's just a couple inches high and it's on a box. Now, if we do that for four to six weeks, guess what? After that, that lower range of motion might just naturally desensitize just because from a psychological standpoint, like I want to delve into your personal training. That has to do with this. You have problems with the flat bench. Yes. What? And you have implemented, and I have attempted to implement all of these changes to your program unsuccessfully. What are your thoughts on that context and situation? What's going gotcha. on? So, yeah. So I, I am not immune to these ideas of neurotags, pain sensitivity, all of that fun stuff. So I had a shoulder, shoulder surgery back in 2011, slap repaired, nine anchors, never got the internal range of motion, internal, internal Why am I having internal rotation range of motion back? Like I only have 20 to 30 degrees on my right arm and I have trouble. I am sensitized in the, in the barbell bench press pattern. Um, I've tried grip modifications and 
right now it's actually doing well, but now it's intensity based where pain starts to creep at higher intensities. So when you get into this, and I tell people this, when we talk about the difference between conventional and sumo deadlift, sometimes specific lifts can become so sensitized just because of how long you've been dealing with them that you need to make a decision, whether you're the client or you're the, the trainer or you're the rehab therapist, is it worth it to continue to work at desensitizing this pattern? Is this specific lift necessary to help the client reach their goals? And in my case, it no longer is like, there's no reason I need to flat barbell bench press. I'm not prepping for a powerlifting competition right now, where for me, the modifiable factor is if I incline the bench five to 10 degrees, boom, pain-free, extremely tolerable. So am I going to spend all of the, all of my efforts, I'm not going to put towards desensitizing the flat bench when I can continue to get the training effect with that 10 degree incline. So the 10 degree incline is my main horizontal pressing lift right now. If I wanted to keep working at it, if I said, okay, I need to go compete. I, I would, I would like, I've been asking you, man. I know just, it's just not in the cards <laughs> right now. It's I, I would divert my energy to, okay. I realize that I have chronic persistent pain with the specific pattern. Let's dig into it. And so, yeah, that's the answer I got for you. On like that. with a lacrosse ball. Oh yeah. <laughs> dig into it and remove all of the trigger points and then um, I'll be good to go. Yeah. I, it's funny. I just, was with on the phone with an athlete last night who is post-surgical repair, shoulder repair. He's 63 and he wants to make a run to CrossFit Games. He went a couple years ago on another post and uh, a first shoulder repair on, on his opposite shoulder. And he's just not progressing as well as he did the first time because we came, we did it in like mid-fall. And by May, we were able to hit the qualifier and he qualified for the CrossFit Games, right? Which was awesome. And so we were same, same pattern this time. He's got more limited range of motion. You know, the progressions aren't coming as fast. And so we had a talk last night and, and he was like, I just don't know if I, if I'm, if I want to do it. Right. And he was like, that's totally fine. You're 63. You can do whatever you want. Like, I don't, I, I want to help you. If you, your goal, want, you want to get there. I know the things that we have to accomplish to get there and you have to do X and Y, Z, right. Overhead squatting, handstand pushups, things like that. And so we're still working on it. And, uh, but he's, he's in between. It's like, is this what you want to do forever? And once he stops trying to make this push to get to the next stage or uh, you competing, he won't do those things anymore. Like he just will, like the overhead squat will not be a part of his training. And he's very fit. He's going to keep doing crossfit for, you know, till he, yeah. till he kills over. And, but those are just things that he's just going to leave out because it's not that important. Right. So uh, as Joe, Joe said this probably like 10 times in the past few days, it's like, is the juice worth the squeeze as far as focusing on what, that specific thing is I, I'm very uncomfortable flat, flat bench pressing in volume often. So I utilize dumbbells and, and I know that when I have it, I have to stay light and I have to go tempo. Like that's just what yep. allows me to do it consistently pairing it with muscle ups and all the other things that are more important to my sport and my activity. So again, is it worth the squeeze and how do you prioritize those things? Really do, do you think it's problematic that you avoid it? I don't avoid no. it. I don't avoid. I do push-ups and things. I mean, I still, the flat bench. I still I know like, it's not in your sport, but do you feel do you feel like there's a weird relationship that there's just like a hole in your movement? Me or CJ? Either of you. Uh, 
Um, no, I don't because, um, I still dumbbell flat bench. And even if I didn't dumbbell flat bench, is this, let me put it, is the stress really that different on the shoulder joint between a flat bench and five to 10 degrees? Is it really that different? Probably not. <laughs> so that's hurting so bad to agree with us right now. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, you said earlier about people, not ever needing to to flat bench if they don't want to, and and of course I agree with that. I, I'm I'm more playing with the idea of of I recognize that if somebody has pain with a movement and we cannot get past it, what what sort of narrative uh, can they come up with if we're like, all right, let's just avoid it because we can't figure it out. Well, I don't think as as the coach or the clinician we just blatantly tell them that. I think that. <laughs> Uh, like, Hey, That's probably a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 I think in situations like this, we start to get an idea as we build rapport with the client that, Hey, even the client is not that married to this. And I see a lot of coaches and, um, clinicians pushing their biases on, on them when the client themselves is. So I always, I always ask, sorry, I got an alarm going off. I always ask, the client, like how just figure out, ask them a question. Don't tell them how important is this specific movement to you? Figure out, have a con and they're either going to tell you really important. We're I want to work at it forever until it is tolerable, or there'll be like, yeah, not that much. And then go from there versus, so just ask the question in my opinion, but sure. that being, that being said, you're right. There might be situations where a tough conversation might need to be held it's with, I've just been frustrated in the past with athletes who we just haven't been able to figure out how to train a variation. And it just, I'm just like, okay, well, we just won't train it because this is causing more frustration than getting the lift would uh, provide. But I also am just hesitant to like, like give up on our attempt at resolving mm -hmm. or, trying to improve symptoms in a certain range of motion because it, like I'm my fear is that we're going to leave that person with this lifelong I guess I just can't barbell squat because my hip hurts every time I do it I I, I would be well, fearful of that I think I also think there's there's like a hierarchy of importance of movements too I don't think a flat bench press is as important as a barbell squat or just a squat you watch your tongue boy um <laughs> as far as like the because there's a lot of ways to modify it, right? Push up, you know, slight incline, dumbbell. And we can accomplish the same pattern, but it's just the specifics of the barbell. Like Mike, he can do dumbbell, which is fine. So he's not avoiding the pattern. He's avoiding, he's avoiding a specific lift, right? But not a movement pattern at all, really. Yeah. In the slightest bit. So I think those are, that's different, right? We would never tell someone, that struggle with deadlifting, they don't have deadlift, right? Yeah. That, that would never, because we know bending over and picking things up is high up there on that, like, let's stay independent for, sure. for a real long time scale, yeah. right? And so, so there's, there's a, I think there's a movement hierarchy of like, what's okay to, okay, this isn't that important. Let's vary, let's create a variant that's manageable. And there's some that, that maybe aren't like a barbell back squat. Maybe, and it maybe, maybe they just don't back squat. Maybe they just front squat or goblet squat and they load that up, right. Or safety bar or something because they really struggle to, you know, not be hinged over, et cetera. Right. And, and so we're still doing the pattern, 
creating that variant. But I do think that there's some things that are more important as far as longevity and, and independence when you're older, as like we roll in a lot of what we do is, you know, we want to emulate, we want to pick things up, we want to get off the ground, we want to put our arms over our head, we want to get in and out of a chair, that kind of stuff, right? Those are the yeah. priorities, especially with our lower level patients that aren't a barbell skill or like a higher level athlete, like those are things, okay, we got to do these things, right? we got to put our arms overhead in some fashion. If someone's stuck here, we're going to continue to prioritize working to get as high as we can as a staple, even if it's not going to make a ton, because if we stop completely, then maybe that goes from here, you know, you can't see me. So overhead back down to 90 degrees or yeah. something. Like that. So yeah, I think that's a player as well. Um, two, two quick points to that. I mean, if we, Joe, you mentioned the, the guidelines that you mentioned the aerobic guidelines, but if we just look at the who strength guidelines, right. We, we know that if, if we're getting uh, adults exercise, strength training, multi-joint compound movements, at least twice a week with some load, you're, you're already winning in that sense. So um, I used to even like dis on machines. Like I'm not, I'm, it's not my bias to train people with machines, but if that's what they're going to adhere to and people, then I'm, I'm down for it. Right. I used to be like, ah, machines, like, but they're loading their joints. They're already beating. Like you get where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I think that we should not be afraid to, if, if a, if a movement pattern is extremely sensitized, where modifications of load form load placement don't work. I think we need to let people know that it is okay to take a break from a movement pattern for some period of time, just because sometimes movement patterns are extremely sensitized. Like take somebody that has a really bad tweak uh, with a deadlift and they can't tolerate any hip hinge patterns. It might be okay to take a break from hip hinging for three to four weeks. Like, it's not like you're going to completely lose that movement pattern. Sometimes in specific situations, the pattern itself is so sensitized where, Hey, you can't even find any way to have this person squat without pain. That's okay. Let's take a break from the squat. Let's see what we can do. Let's keep you moving. And then we'll revisit it in a month. And I always say like, we need to zone out and look at the bigger picture here. If, and I made this mistake when I was 18. I just used to have all, like back tweak after back tweak where I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss my deadlift day in five days. If I do not deadlift in five days, like I'm going to lose it forever. And we need to fight that mentality. We're, we're in this for the long haul. So Bro, I do that now. <laughs> I know. You're like, oh my God, my deadlift day. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. miss it. I'm screwed. My whole program's jacked up. Ah, dang. Um, CJ, anything else? I, I don't, I don't really have. Too many more questions, if any. Do you have a final question or one question before the final question? Um, no, I, have, I think I have a final question. Can I ask one before you your final question? Mike, we, we lived together in college for a few years, um, and the way that we met was funny because we both seemed to recognize Lane Norton for his ability to talk on the internet. What do you... <laughs> You introduced me to starting strength, which I think catapulted me into like a whole world of physical skepticism. Mm -hmm. Would you do it all over again, going through the starting strength phase now, knowing what we know now and thinking what we think about them in general? Are you asking me if I, if I was, would, if I would, was new to resistance training, again. Yeah, yeah. yeah, would I run a starting strength yeah. novice linear progression? Uh, or read the not. book or recommend the book. Oh, um, 
Well, as far as my own training, if I was new, I would not recommend the program as like to a T. Like I would not do the program. I would add more variations to the lift. I would add more exercise variations in general than just the squat, bench, dead, chin up, pull up and row. I would do more things, but I would still abide by the basic principles of progressive overload in the beginning. Um, but I would, wouldn't prioritize the weight on the bar as much as uh, they do. I would uh, not make load as important. So yes. And I still, I still think they're a great re resource for teaching the lifts as far as like how to actually do them. Um, so yeah. yeah. So big picture, I, I wouldn't run the exact program, but I would follow principles from it. I, I think it was a very formative time for myself. Like, yeah. I think I read that book four times. Um, I probably bought it like six times, gave it to people. I, I mean, it just was such a good foot in the door. And mm -hmm. I don't think I would be in a position today if you hadn't introduced me to Uncle hey, Rick. Check us out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Hey, you ever read this book? I think you gave it to me when we moved in together. So thanks, man. I think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a good starting point. Um, and as with any system, every system has its flaws. And if you can, if you can take the best and uh, critically think about things and sure. just read different things, and then, hey, this is, this is some cool stuff here. I don't, I might not agree with this. The evidence doesn't suggest this now, but every, everybody has something to offer. Yeah. Except some people. Except but. some people. Yeah. We'll talk about some, that next time. Yeah, some things are just nonsense. Um, CJ, final question. Yeah. What is the coolest thing you own that costs less than $20? The coolest thing that I own that costs less than $20? Um, probably <laughs> my Rubik's Cube because... See, <laughs> yes. what a great question. This is awesome. That worked out perfectly. Because yeah. some somewhere along the lines in my nerdy middle school career, I thought that if I learned how to solve a Rubik's cube very quickly that it would uh, make girls like me. So um, I did learn how to do a Rubik's cube very quickly, but it did not work on the girls at that time. What about now? Oh yeah. I'm happily married. And Kelsey gets wife... you jazzed, get, gets oh, jazzed yeah, up when she sees you flipping that cube around. Oh so... yeah. No, she's like, here we go again. <laughs> and you still do it? Yeah, I still do it. I still have it. I have it right in my drawer. It's right, it's right there. Yeah. It's funny. I also used to rip on a Rubik's cube back in middle school and I could do it in like two minutes. It was crazy. Yeah. Mike, I think, I think the picture I have of you playing the piano with the harmonica around your mouth on our couch is a much better aphrodisiac. If, if you ever need one oh. in the future. Oh yeah. Crack the harmonica out. Harmonica and piano. Yeah. I, I actually have a very musical side. I just, it's, I don't share. Do you still play? You yeah. Still I get the piano sitting right behind, Heck right yeah. behind me right now. And I play, I play the harmonica and uh, I'm actually getting back into the piano a little bit. So. Well, cool. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. It's always good to hear from you. Um, I had a great time at your Olympic lifting seminar. Was it a couple of weeks ago in Boston? Yeah. For sure. um, had a great time. Uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Uh, Mike, where can the people find you? Um, and if you have anything uh, to promote, please do it now. Gotcha. Yeah. My most active social media channel is Instagram. So you can just uh, hit me up on Instagram at barbell rehab. And uh, the, the self-promotion would be if you're a fitness or rehab professional and interested in learning more, check out one of our live uh, barbell rehab method certification courses. We have almost 15 scheduled out through the rest of the year, all over the country and uh, super excited to have the opportunity and grateful to be able to teach it. Perfect. 
thank you so much for coming on and everybody tune in next time. We're going to have more cool people on. Thanks for having me on guys. Thank you.